Welcome to Harvest. I'm so glad to be here today. I'm switching over from worship leader to preacher today, um, if you hadn't noticed. Pastor Mike and his family are out of town today, um, so I get the privilege to share God's word with you this morning. Um, but we're going to continue in our series entitled First Things First. So we're going to keep, keep on going through the book of Malachi this morning. So why don't you grab your Bibles. If you're online with us, good morning. Grab your Bibles wherever you're at as well and follow along with us. Um, we're going to just jump right in here. We're finishing up chapter 2. We've got the last verse of chapter 2 and then a couple of verses into chapter 3 that we're going to cover this morning. Uh, we're seeing that the people of Israel are being confronted for their skepticism about God and issues that they're having with their faith. And so Malachi is now calling the people to turn back to God, and we're going to see that God's patience is starting to wear thin uh, on, the, on the people of Israel because, because of their continual just wrong judgment about God. And so uh, we're going to see how he responds just by showing them what righteous judgment is, and then he's going to be revealing that the only reason that anyone can stand before God is because of the work of the coming Messiah. It's the finished work of Christ who would make us right and cleanse the people for himself. You know, as I was preparing this morning, I was or not this morning, I was preparing before today. But I was realizing a lot of my stories are connected to my kids, so I don't, I'm, I'm fine with that, but apparently I need to just get out more, I'm not sure. Um, but here's another story about my kids. Uh, as I was thinking about just the lesson that we're learning today, I think about how for our kids, maybe it's the same for, for your kids, how, how they just desire to see justice happen in their lives and these little worlds that they're creating for themselves. Um, you know, when they come running to us, there's a disagreement of some kind, and they're like, they took my toy, they're being mean, they did something to me, whatever it is, they're usually all talking at the same time, so you have to kind of figure out what's going on. But whatever that charge is, they desire to see an immediate consequence carried out. And they might even try to be helpful and offer suggestions for what those consequences should be, right? Like, thank you, we'll, we'll take care of this. And, but you can tell when, when they're not seeing that, that justice being carried out when they desire for it and how they desire to see it, they, you see that, that anxious feeling start to build up in them. Now, of course, this only applies if someone else is in trouble, right? So all of those rules don't apply if they're the one that did something, but that's understandable. So just imagine this scenario is being played out on a much larger scale. So we have whole communities of people feeling like they're not being treated fairly or justly. And this is what's happening in our passage today in Malachi. So we have the prophet uh, who's speaking to the people of Israel who are feeling frustrated and they're feeling disillusioned because they don't see justice being done. What they see to them, they see the wicked are being re rewarded and they're seeing the righteous being punished. That's their view. And so they don't understand why God isn't just intervening right then. Because the people are witnessing what they see as a lack of justice being carried out. And so they're asking that question, why? You know, why is God not inflicting justice? When in reality, God's going to make it very clear to them that judgment is in fact coming. It's coming not only for those that they perceive as those evildoers who are in need of some justice, but it's coming for them too. And the truth is, 
that same justice is coming for all of us. And so we are challenged in our passage. Our main point for this morning is that we need to prepare for God's justice. So why don't you follow along with me? I'm just going to read the whole of the passage just so we can can see the the full context of this. Um, So we're starting in chapter 2, verse 17, and we'll, we'll read through those. So it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So a lot going on here, a lot to unpack. So Malachi is dealing with a situation where the people, again, were wondering why God wasn't doing something to correct the sins and the corruption in the land. And so the only reason that they seemed to be able to come up with was that God was unwilling to judge sin. And so obviously this needed to be addressed and corrected. And so the first issue that we see here was the demand for justice and the impatience in it being carried out. And so let's take a look at just verse 17, where our first point this morning is that we want justice. And that is so often just inherently in, in us, isn't it? So verse 17 starts with Malachi making the statement to Israel. He's saying, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And so this, this is then followed with three assumptions from Israel, just in this one verse. And each of these, they're assuming things about God that they don't really know if they're true or not. And obviously in this case, Israel's assumptions are in fact completely wrong. So, Let's look at these assumptions that Israel is making. So the first one is that Israel assumes God is not wearied by us. So they they do this in in the form of asking a question. So they say, how have we wearied him? And on the surface, that might seem like like a reasonable question to ask. They just want clarity on Malachi's claim here. Like, well, what's going on? But we know that the spiritual condition of Israel right now is at a record low because if you, if you remember in these first two chapters, they're disregarding God's electing love, they're offering poor sacrifices, their spiritual leaders are lost, and then the men are being careless with their wives. And then they have the audacity to say, how have we wearied him? So this question 
is not coming from a place of innocence. It's ignorance and it's arrogance. And that is what happens when we give ourselves over to sin. We start to see the world upside down and, and we just we don't see things clearly. Because we know that Israel has just been brought back from exile. The temple is rebuilt. Worship is being reestablished. But for them, that was not enough. Their experience of life had not adequately increased in their opinion. So now they're discontent. And Israel is complaining, and now God is is becoming worn out by their words. And just to clarify that kind of idea, that that image, the question is, can God physically be wearied or worn out? No. So this is something called an anthropomorphism, which is a real word and one that I practiced many, many times, and I was still very nervous to say just now. But this is just something, uh, this is an act of, of applying a human characteristic to the Lord. And so Malachi is using this in order just to convey how tiresome it is to hear these complacent people just grumbling and making these accusations towards God, which is what we continue to hear in our second assumption. So the second thing that Israel assumes is that God likes evil. And we see that when they say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, which, like, Yikes, that's a really big claim to make. But we have to wonder, where, like, where is this coming from? It couldn't just come out of nowhere. Well, we know that there's, there's certainly sin in the Gentile nations around them. But really, the irony of all this is Israel is the one that is deep in, in evil and sin right now. So are they really talking about outside nations, or are they talking about their fellow Jews? Well, I, I would... I would venture to guess that the answer is both, yes, all of the above. This is a voice of a person who's pointing at the problems of everyone but themselves. And it's so often our preoccupation when we become prideful, right? Like our, our eyes turn inward to our needs, and then we point our fingers out to the sins of other people. But who is Israel really shifting their focus to? Like, who are they ultimately pointing the finger at and accusing in their statement? Well, it's God. They're talking about justice for the evils of the world, but what they really, really care about is justice for what they have deemed as an unjust circumstance, which God, they see God having placed them in. And that is the issue behind these comments. That their fight is really with God. And sadly, this seems to be Israel's pattern. You think about God frees the people from Egypt, then they complain about the wilderness. Then God delivers them from captivity, and then they complain about the prosperity of the wicked. And so then we see this final assumption. So they've assumed God is not wearied by them, by their complaining. They have accused him of liking evil. And then the third thing they assume is that God is not just. So here's another accusation kind of cloaked in a question. We see here in the last part of verse 17 where they say, where is the God of justice? And you can feel this, this tone in, in this question. It's, it's less of a legitimate inquiry. It's like if I were to say, say to someone like, why are you so annoying? 
You know, like, that's not a really genuine question to ask, and, like, that's not going to go well if you ask someone that. Just heads up. Uh, But they build their previous assumption that God, having not dealt with evil in the timing that they desired, must then like it. And so, therefore, if he likes evil, he cannot be a just God. But it's, it's, not a, it's not a hopeful desire. When they, when they ask, where is he? This isn't coming from a place of hope. It's, it's an attack on his character. Because Israel has just mixed up their priorities and mixed up their place in their relationship with God. I think they're, they're thinking that for them, they're, they're good with God, but everything else around is, is not going according to their idea of what should, should happen. So God is just, he's not just. He's not doing what he, we think he should be doing right now. Like, we're fine, but he, he's got some issues elsewhere. But really, there are a number of reasons why God would delay judgment that, that Israel is impatiently waiting for, apart from the fact that we know that God is slow to anger. We see examples where God often postpones judgment to give people the time to repent or to prepare themselves spiritually. But for us, we also know the full picture. We know in the divine plan of redemption. We know that the Messiah had to come and pay for the sins of the world so that judgment would be poured out on him on behalf of his people. So we know that he wouldn't come to judge in the days of Malachi, but in his own time. But the prophet, he was telling his audience here that the request was presumptuous because if they, if they really wanted to see justice, the justice of God, then the truth is they would be in trouble too, right? So he was, the prophet was coming down really hard on this kind of shallow thinking that they, they had at this time. And he was making it really clear that if they wanted the, God, the, the justice of God to be dispensed, then no one could stand. You see, the the individual who understands this, they will always desire divine grace over divine judgment, right? But unfortunately, the people of Israel, they just, they could not see past this expectation they they had for God. And I think we often, for ourselves, we find ourselves in that same position, right? Like, even in our brokenness, we still hold on to these expectations that we have for God to work a certain way in our lives. So then we start to question his timing and his goodness and his justice. But again, the truth is the same for us. If we really got what we deserved, we would see immediate punishment. So in this prophetic message, the promise of coming justice is, is tied to the coming of the Messiah. And they couldn't see that. Israel's prophets were looking forward to that day when the Messiah would come to judge the wicked and to reward the righteous by setting up his reign of peace. So then the people are just asking where God is. Like, why isn't it happening now? And they're wa- wondering why he doesn't do anything about the injustice that they're seeing right now in the world. Why isn't it happening today? Well, God is about to respond very clearly, and so the answer is our next point this morning is that justice is coming. 
So Israel had a chance now to make all of their claims about what they see was right and wrong. And now God is speaking through Malachi in verse 1 where he says, Behold. It's kind of like that moment when you're a kid and you're going back and forth arguing with your parents and you say that thing that just is like one step too far and then it gets like real quiet and like the parent steps in. You're like, okay. This is that moment. God is the parent here and he's looking at Israel and he's like, all right, you're speaking about things that you don't really understand. So now I'm going to tell you what the plan is. And so in verse 1, we begin to see that plan unfold. The real story about what he will do to deal with evil and to bring justice on the earth. And it's the plan that he has actually had all along. It's the promise that he's given all along. And just so we don't miss it, if there's any confusion on what that is, the answer for the, for ev- for the evil in the world is Jesus. The end. And that's all we need to know, right? Well, let's unpack that a little bit so we, we don't have to end yet. But that's the answer. This is what we need to hear when we have grown complacent in our love for the Lord. This is what we need to hear when we start demanding of God. So let's just look at uh, God's promised plan. And this, God says, is what will happen. So the first thing is, God's messenger will prepare the way. And so the word messenger, it's used several times here, and it's actually referring to two different people. So let's distinguish between those two. The first messenger in the beginning of verse 1 is connected with a very specific activity. God says, he will prepare the way before me. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's the same language Isaiah used to describe the preparation for the Messiah in Isaiah 40. And he says there, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. And that's the same verse that all four Gospels connect with John the Baptist, that voice crying in the wilderness. So that's our first messenger, and the first aspect of God's promised plan. So John, John the Baptist, was commissioned by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was removing the obstacles of unbelief through his proclamation of repentance. He was preparing the hearts of the people for the one who would come and bring forgiveness of sins. He was going before Jesus so that when Christ arrived to do the spiritual work in us, the way was clear. Now, apathetic Israel clearly needed this preparation to be ready for God's plan to unfold. And it's just like it is with us. Because a complacent, prideful heart is, is no soft ground for Christ to come and do his work, right? And so God shows his grace to Israel in sending this messenger who clears and prepares the way for the next messenger. So this one is God's Messiah will come to his temple. And so we see in the second part of verse 1, the text again helps us determine who the other messenger is. So the sentence begins with, and the Lord. So that's pretty clear there. You have the messenger who will prepare the way, which is John the Baptist, and then you have the messenger who's called the Lord. So this is Jesus the Messiah, which is then further proved in, his, in the description given to him where God calls him the messenger of the covenant who is coming to his temple. 
You know, a, a covenant is an unbroken promise, right? And, and in Scripture, God makes these formal promises with different key individuals that then establish his eternal commitment to his chosen people. And so Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of every one of these covenants. And so he's depicted here as the one who will carry out God's covenant plan. And it says he's coming to his temple. And now the rebuilt temple has a lot of focus on it at this time. It's, it's one of those things that actually Israel is discontent about because they don't believe it has the splendor that they wanted or thought it should have. But all that aside, God is reminding Israel now that it's actually the Lord's temple. It's not theirs. It doesn't belong to them. And the Lord is coming to his temple. And the significance here is of his coming to the temple as their great high priest. He's offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. He's tearing the veil to allow access to God. Beyond that, you have the incredible return of Christ when he comes to reign on the throne of earth, which will be on that same temple mount. And so we see that the main character here is the messenger of the covenant, the one Israel has been seeking. It's the one they've been longing for since sin, since sin entered the world where God made that first covenant in the garden in Genesis where he gave his promised plan to bring justice through the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And with each promise of God, it's it's like the Old Testament is like leaning forward in this anticipation for that plan just unfold. And so now we come to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and God is establishing, establishing here once again that the plan is still set since, since the beginning that my messenger who carries the covenants is in fact coming. So first, God's messenger, John the Baptist, will prepare the way. Second, God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come to his temple. And so we know as we're longing for justice, we know that we're seeing that God is promising that justice is coming The question that we need to ask ourselves, our our final point this morning, is will you be ready for justice? If we know it's coming, will you be ready for it? God's saying, you're waiting for me to come, you're waiting for me to bring justice, and you're complaining that I'm long in coming, but when I come, are you even going to be ready for it? And we see it starts with this rhetorical question of who can endure the day of his coming? And we know that the answer is no one. No one could survive judgment on their own merit. But those who repent and believe can spiritually stand. And it's important to notice that those who are going to come through God's judgment cleansed, they're going to do so through fire, through this intense washing. And so in this part of the passage, we see God describes Christ using two different illustrations. So let's take a look at those. First, he says that he is like a refiner's fire. And I'm sure you've heard this, this idea before, you know, when metal is under this extreme heat, the impurities within those metals, they rise to the surface, and so all of that, what they call dross, that can be scraped away, and it leaves this purer version of the metal. And so this intense refiner's fire for us 
allows our sin and our impurities to be more easily removed from our hearts and from our lives. And so then we see the second illustration. It's called fuller's soap. This is different from refinement. This is referring to the washing and the cleansing. And so the job of the fuller was to make the cloth full. What's surprise there? It makes it more suitable for like weaving and sewing garments. That's what they used to make all of their garments. And there was this, this multi-step process where there was bleaching of the garment. They had to wash it, and then they would beat the garment out to get it uh, more fit for use. And so as we walk with the Lord, there should be a cleansing. We need to experience that bleaching and the wetting and even the beating process so our spiritual fibers would be more consistent and desirable. That's how we become more like the Lord. And that is the ultimate goal. That's what we are called to do. So we need to prepare. We need to be full and consistent and desirable. And so then when we are out in the world from day to day, we can be refined and we can be cleansed and we can be prepared to go out into the world. And like that purifying process for the cloth, for us, the truth is, it, it may seem harsh at times. It may feel painful. It may even seem impossible at times. But it is all meant to prepare us to be this offering in righteousness, as he says, when he returns. And so by accepting that process and walking through this spiritual practice, says then, a true believer stands positionally clean before God. The text says that he will sit as a refiner and he will purify the sons of Levi. He's sitting with care. He's intentional in the work that he's doing in our lives. But think, think of this. The, see the true grace that's in action here. We're talking about the sons of Levi that he's doing this work in. These are the corrupt priests that have been deceitfully trying to appease God with these insufficient offerings and sacrifices that are ultimately dishonoring the Lord. But what's going on here is God is washing them. He's purifying them. He's showing them grace, even though they don't seem to be fully grasping the work that he's doing. This idea of justice that they are so longing for... um, you go to pretty much any movie, they like to capitalize on that power of justice, right? You got the corrupt antagonist who you eagerly are just waiting to see, like, get what they deserve, right? And then you have this kind protagonist who gets beaten down for a while, cast aside, and we cheer for them to win. But there is a bigger narrative that's going on that, we're, that we are a part of. It's, it's history. And, and, and God does have a plan. We're reminded in Isaiah 55 that his ways are not our ways. Because in contrast to God's perfection, the truth is every one of us is the antagonist. We have all sinned and all fallen short. And if justice was to be dealt with simply based on our deservedness, we would all perish. We would all be punished. But in God's justice plan, the bad guy us, gets what the hero deserves because the hero takes upon himself the penalty for the, wrong, the bad guy's wrongdoings. 
God is always flipping the script, right? He's always doing the unexpected. And so through that, we see that he can take an adulterous, apathetic people and at his own expense, refine and purify them into redeemed children. And I know, I know that we have testimonies like that here in this room. And it's that grace, that grace of God that should be the motivator in our lives for change. And so the question you ask yourself is, will you be ready? Take a look at 2 Peter uh, 3. It's going to be up on the screen just a moment. Where It's talking about this coming day of the Lord, His judgment. And it's describing the new heaven and the new earth, and it focuses on the earth being made new through fire. But take a look at this application here in verse 17 18. Follow along with me here. It says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, yes, the gospel frees us from the penalty of our sin. Amen. Thank you for that, Lord. But we see that there is a strong exhortation that Scripture gives us that we be motivated by the fact that we've been spared to then grow in the Lord and pursue Christ-likeness. And that is what the refiner's purification is leading to in Malachi, where it says in verse 3 that he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So for everyone who repents and believes in Christ, we will be his people. He will be our God, and he will remember our sins no more. And isn't God's plan just so much better than any plan that we could come up with ourselves? We see in verse 5, the Lord says, I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against. So then he goes on to list uh, people who are characterized by sin. So he, uh, he calls out sorcerers and adulterers and oppressors of the poor and the needy. And all of these people are summarized as those God says, do not fear me. The truth is they are enemies of God. And their end is very different from those in God's family. Because everyone will stand before the Lord. But thankfully, the believer's judgment is not at all like the unbeliever's. And so, if you are in Christ today, to be as direct as possible, you need to know that there is a very real, eternal consequence that awaits you if you reject him. And we see Malachi's warning here that judgment is coming and it will be swift. With their willful disobedience, and lack of any reverence for God, they have set themselves in opposition with the Lord. On the other end, we see in verses like uh, Psalm 30, verse 5, that there's good news for believers. It says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. 
Now, frighteningly, the opposite is true for the unbeliever. God's favor, while here on earth, lasts for just that short time. And then his judgment will burn for a lifetime, an eternal lifetime. And so knowing that truth, believing it to be true, does, does that reality not stir you out of any spiritual apathy and make you unbelievably thankful for your salvation? And doesn't it, does it not drive you to want to just proclaim the gospel to those who have decided to be enemies of God? Because we know that God's justice plan has never been, will never be thwarted. And so, Ask yourself, are you on board with his plan? Or will you continue to live your life just questioning, um, doubting, making presumptions about God like Israel was because of the circumstances of your life in a fallen world? Or will you trust God's promises and stand firm knowing that whatever you face, as hard as it may be, God has a plan for your good and for his glory. The section of the message on the faithfulness of God continues with this firm doctrinal statement in verse 6 where it says that God does not change. And this statement is forming this transition from the last section where you know, people thought that God has, had just decided to no longer judge sin to this section where it shows that he does and always has. The people of God should find this really so comforting because in spite of their failures, God hasn't changed. And it's important to note this because notice what the implication is. Because if God was a God whose plans just changed on the whim of a disgruntled people, they themselves would be consumed right there and then, on the spot. And so the point is that God is faithful to the covenants that he makes. And so God very honestly tells the people that they've failed time and time again. Not an easy thing to hear, hopefully. Hopefully that jars them a little bit. Ever since the time of their forefathers. But he has always been there to call them to repentance so that they could enjoy the blessings of God. And so here again, he calls them to return, so that he might return to them. And that, that word return in Hebrews is often a call for repentance, to turn back from sin. So he's asking them, return, repent. Then God will turn, turn back the course of action that he has begun, which is punishment for sin. So with all of that, how do we bring these truths into our daily lives? And how do we prepare for God's justice? And so a couple of things I would, I would list here is, first thing is to trust your just God. Don't spend your whole life just wearying the Lord with your cries for justice that are only according to you. Trust the only one who can, be, who can truly be trusted. The only one whose plans always come to pass. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that every one of his promises in Christ are yes and amen. His plan is bigger than your circumstances. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. And really, how wonderful is it 
that his big plan shows that he intimately cares for each one of us. So don't just weary the Lord. Trust in him. Trust in his plan and worship him. And to do that, let's say, requires this next truth, which is to embrace the refiner's fire. The work of our sanctification is a work of the Lord, but there is an embracing and receiving of God's work in our lives that is absolutely necessary. Our young adults actually just covered uh, a passage in Philippians 2 just last week where it says that we are called to work out our salvation, but knowing it's God at work in us. There is an act that we are called to fulfill through God's grace and through our salvation in Him. We also have to understand the truth is of that it's not, often not a pain-free experience. To remove sin and be cleansed of it is, is not pain-free. I think of um, our son Archer, who just turned three yesterday. He's our littlest. And uh, Archer has a sensory processing disorder. And so what that does is it just it makes everyday tasks and everyday uh, things in his life that we might not even think about just makes it uh, more irritable or even uncomfortable and sometimes even painful for him. And we know that a lot of kids hate taking baths. I'm, well, I don't love taking showers either if you know me about it. I just, I hate getting wet. Um, that's beside the point. But for Archer, for him, it just, the idea of, of taking a bath just was amped up. It just was so uncomfortable and so hard and painful for him. But we knew, Blythe and I knew that even through his discomfort, through that experience, we continued the washing process because we understood that this momentary discomfort was going to result in him being clean and restored. And so for you right now, if God is refining you, don't push that away, but welcome it. Accept it and embrace it. Our son, even at his young age, he worked, so, he worked so, so hard to get to a place to where now baths are not just tolerated. He doesn't clench his teeth through it. They're actually welcomed. They're enjoyed. They're embraced. So knowing that he's making you more into the likeness of his son, preparing you for your eternal existence with him, it shouldn't just be tolerated. It should be welcomed. It should be embraced in our lives. The next thing I would say is to examine yourself. In 2 Corinthians 13, it says to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now that's a command to the church to ask yourself, is Christ truly in you? The believer will find that he is because there will be fruit consistent with a heart submitted to Christ. But if you find that Christ is not in you, the message from God is, is simple. Just repent. And you may have come today, having walked through life, seeing the effects of sin, evil people, injustice, or pain in your own life. And you think, where is God in all this? You know, if he's sovereign and my life looks like this, where is the God of justice? And if that is you, hear me say, the truth is, you are not alone in your pain. You don't have to walk alone. 
that God has a plan for you and for your life to restore you. So embrace that today. God is just, and he offers you the only way to be cleansed and saved. The truth is that the evil we experience in in this life is a result of the sin that we all share. And only God provides the answer for that problem. And so, we also need to recognize that your sin is an offense before him. And repent and place your trust fully in Christ, who endured the wrath of God for you, who died in your place, who rose from the the grave, and now offers you refuge. You want to be found in him when he returns. You do. The last thing I'll say briefly is, Prepare the way for his return. You know, the Old Testament looked forward to Christ's coming, and so does the New Testament. And there are two ways that we should, as Christians, do as John the Baptist, as we prepare for Christ's return. I'll just list these quickly. First, proclaim the gospel to the lost. Then second, call other believers to live righteously. So if your faith is in Christ, and you trust in God's plan, live a life that reflects that. Tell others about him. Encourage your fellow believers to stay the course and live for him. And in all of these ways, as we said in the beginning, we can prepare for God's justice. The truth is, the same problem of evil that Malachi's audience is encountering, it's not going to go away until Jesus comes again in glory. We've all encountered evil in the world and all of us have come face to face with this in very personal and often painful ways. And when that happens, what's your response? Is your response much like in Malachi's day when you say, God must not care about the evil around me so I'm just not going to follow him? Do you distance yourself from justice all while convincing yourself that God must not be good, his people are foolish, and it's just... It's just not worth it. Recognize that real evil exists in the world and it needs to be lamented and grieved. But remember, you must also grieve the wickedness of your own heart. Don't be so consumed, even as we grieve and lament, though, of the wickedness of the world, though, that you continue to remain ignorant to your sin and the wickedness that's lurking in your heart and in your life, like the people of God in Malachi, who just at every turn seem to be blind to their own sin. We know that the God of the covenant has fully dealt with the wickedness of our sin, and he promises salvation and renewed worship as God's people for anyone who would turn to Jesus Christ. God promises that in Christ the guilt And the corruption of our sin is atoned for. So then we can worship him as we are created to do freely. God should have wiped out the people of Israel a long time before this because they had broken his laws and his commands. And it is only because he is unfailingly patient and merciful they've not been destroyed. But don't mistake patience for injustice. Because the time of judgment is coming. So the question I ask you is, do you know Jesus? Do you live for him? 
do you see that the only remedy possible for the problem of evil is found in Jesus? He bore the worst of sin so that we could have life. So turn to him and repent. Our strongest tool in preparing for God's justice is the great hope that we cling to when we are so overcome by evil and wickedness in the world. So put your hope in the gospel. Jesus bore our sin and wickedness so that we would not be consumed by the God of justice when he comes again. So the question is, are you ready? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that you have given us your promised plan from the very beginning and nothing we do, none of our grumbling or impatience has ever changed that. We thank you that we have the full view of that plan and that you fulfilled it through your son Jesus. And you have offered us a way. You have offered us salvation through him. God, help us to continue to be cleansed and refined and renewed. God, wash us. God, allow us to accept that that process. Allow us to walk with you so that we can stand before our God fully cleansed. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. But we thank you that you are a God of justice, that you are the ultimate conqueror of sin and evil, and that we don't have to second-guess you, and we don't have to wonder when you will fulfill that you are doing so and you have done so. So God, we give you all the glory. We hold you as King and Lord over our lives. We thank you that all of your promises are yes and amen. We give this all to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.